Good to see your faces. And for those of you who are visitors, a uh, special welcome to you. I, uh, I know that walking into church can be a scary thing, especially when you're new, um, when you don't know the church, and any church for that matter. Right? <laughs> sometimes churches are weird, and uh, pastors are weird, and church people are weird sometimes. Uh, so thanks for taking the risk and uh, coming and checking out Mosaic. We're really pumped that you're here. Uh, you're here on a good morning. This morning um, is an exciting morning. We're starting a brand new teaching series on the book of Ruth. And uh, I'm particularly excited for this series. Um, it's something different uh, than what we normally do. Because uh, for us as a church, what we normally do is we ask, okay, what are, what are the issues, what are the struggles, what are those areas of our lives that, um, that people tend to wrestle with, that God has spoken about, and if God could get a hold of this area of their life, uh, it, would, it would change things for them. And, and then we go through those topics and we open up the Bible and say, okay, what, what, does, what does God have to say about these things? And that's usually the way that we approach it. Um, but now we're doing something a little bit different uh, with this series, and we're actually going to go through a book, an uh, entire book, <laughs> which is four chapters long. So we're kind of cheating. You know? <laughs> but I'm excited. I, I'm excited for this particular book for a number of different reasons. One, um, I love that the book of Ruth is in the Bible because it is set... Uh, almost with an all-female cast in what was a very male-dominated society, uh, which I think that preaches. I think that has, I think that has something to say about, about God and, and about his value uh, for men and women. And, and Ruth just explodes onto the stage um, as this hero of the faith, and, and she just does not fit the bill for what we would normally expect. And there's just so much good stuff in there. In our house, my wife's middle name is Ruth. Uh, her mom's middle name is Ruth. Uh, our oldest daughter's middle name is Ruth, and so we're big on Ruth. We, we, Ruth is awesome. So, so I'm pretty excited. So what we're going to do, the way that this is going to work, it's going to be a little bit different. Um, rather than me stand up and, and just read uh, large portions of Scripture, what we're doing is we're actually totally ripping off Mars Hill, Seattle. Um, and we're showing which where my brother is on staff. And they actually um, have a multi-million dollar budget, and I know this is going to shock you, but we don't. I know, I know. It seems like we do. I know, but we don't. Um, and so what we're going to do is we're actually showing uh, videos. And what they did is they just did a creative uh, telling of these passages of Scripture that we're going to open up and we're going to dig into and see what God has for us. So that being said, get comfortable, uh, and we're going to jump into the book of Ruth. Isn't that great? Way better than me just reading it to you. I showed that to Megan. She's like, yeah, I got way more out of that than I'll get out of your message. That was good. Show that. So. Gotta love spouses. Honesty, yes. Well, hey, I want to begin um, by asking a question and doing a little informal poll. Um, just a moment, I want you to raise your hand. If, if uh, you have ever gone through a season where you found yourself disappointed with God, right, where maybe he didn't show up in the ways that you wanted him to show up, he didn't answer your prayers in the way that you wanted or needed him to answer your prayers, where he felt distant, where you wondered if he cared, or perhaps even that he was there at all. If you've ever gone through a season like that, would you just raise your hand and hold them up? All right, look around. Look around. Thank you. Those people who didn't raise their hands, they didn't understand the question, right? Because <laughs> we've all gone through those seasons. And it's important, I think, to start out that, in that place and to acknowledge that and to say that because when we're going through those times, it feels oftentimes like we're the only ones. Right? And when we look around and we come into a space like this and you listen to a guy like me, and sometimes we don't mean to as pastors, but we make it worse. Right? Because we make a sound a lot easier than it actually is. Right? And we come up and throw a passage of scripture at you and some cheesy jokes and 
three principles that all start with the letter R, just apply them to your life, ta-da, you know, God is good, right? But that's not the way it works, right? right? And sometimes you come into these spaces and, and we just we kind of do the Christian thing of putting on the smile, dressing nice, shaking hands, you know, how you doing? I'm good, how you doing? Good. But in actuality, not good, not good at all, right? But we just kind of kind of fake it, right? And then we look around at people around our lives, and sometimes they're not even Christians. In fact, they're not even trying to be good people. They're making decisions that are destructive and that are selfish, and they're not even trying, and their life just seems to be going so smooth, and you're trying, and everything feels like it's falling apart, right? Or you look around, and other Christians come up, and they say, you know what? You just, you just need more faith, right? You just need to pray harder, right? You just need to get rid of sin, you know, or any number of things, but ultimately what's being communicated is that it's your fault. Because this is supposed to work, and apparently it's working for, for everybody else. Right? And they'll tell you dumb stories at times that make it worse. Right? And they'll be like, man, the other day I was going to the shopping mall, and I was in a big hurry, and I was like, Jesus, I'm in a big hurry. If you could just give me a parking spot really close, that would be awesome. And guess what? Like the parking spot closest to the mall opened up. Is God good or what? And you're just like, shut up. <laughs> I, I don't want to hear that right now. Because that's not my reality, right? God's not answering my prayers, and I'm not praying about stupid things like parking spots, right? I'm praying for real stuff. I'm in a real bind. I'm praying about this scary medical issue. I'm praying for my marriage because I I don't know if it's going to make it through this season. I'm praying for my son or my daughter to return home. I'm praying for a job because my family doesn't have health insurance, and we're struggling to make ends meet, right? It's our issue, is what ends up being communicated. And we come into a space like this, and sometimes it just makes us feel worse. In fact, for some of you, maybe that's the reason that you stopped going to church at some point or just stayed away. Because you, life has been hard. And you just can't put up with a happy, clappy, inauthentic Christianity thing that you seem to perceive in most churches. It just does not seem real. And if that's you, all right, I just want to let you all in a little secret this morning about the people around you. All right, you ready for it? They don't have it together as much as it appears they do. I know I just outed all of you, right? But that's the point, right? Is that we have all, we have all been in seasons where we seriously doubt whether God is good at all. Where he does not come through for us like we need him to, like we think he should. Where we doubt whether he is good. Sometimes where where we doubt whether or not he's even there. Right, because life is hard, and this is a painful season. All right, this, is, this is where our story in Ruth begins. And it is a story that the, the events recorded in Ruth go back 3,000 years. But it starts on common ground, an experience that is common to every single one of us. With deep pain, deep loss, serious doubts. Right, we find right away in, in verse 1, that this particular story, the context for our story, uh, took place during the time of the judges. And if you were here last year, we did a series and looked at some of the the lives of the judges and some of the things that they did. And if you remember, uh, the time of the judges was a particularly dark period of time uh, in the history of God's people. Right? People just ran wild. They did whatever they wanted, Christian or no. Like, you know, like the church, God's people, Uh, They were surrounded by people who didn't care about God, who rejected the idea of God and just did what they wanted. And rather than be a light in the darkness, rather than be a hope to the nations, right, they just turned and did their own thing too. 
right? This, this particular period of time was, was Israel gone wild, right? The mantra was what happens in Bethlehem stays in Bethlehem, you know? Except hepatitis, small print. Right? <laughs> right, it's crazy time. Absolutely crazy time. And right away we're introduced in this particular context, text, this dark time, uh, to this family. And our story is going to follow the lives of this family. We find out there's a husband, there's a wife, and there's two kids. Husband, his name is Elimelech, whose name means my God is king. Right? Great name. Strong name. Slightly ironic when we find out his story, but great name nonetheless. Right? Naomi is his wife. And her name means uh, pleasant or sweet. Right? She's a sweetheart. She's a keeper. But the, the names of their kids are weird. Really bizarre, really bizarre names. Right? And so, you know, like when couples get pregnant for the first time, I don't know if you've been there, but you're pregnant for the first time and you're trying to decide on a name. So you're like, you, get, you buy the books and you're on Google and you're searching for interesting names and meaningful names and most popular names and all these different things. And every now and then you have, you know, parents are just the names they choose. You're just like, what in the world? Like, I remember my brother Josh and his wife Kendall when they were pregnant for the first time. I was praying fervently that they would have a boy because Joshua was adamant. If they had a boy, they were going to name him name him Mufasa. <laughs> and I wanted a nephew named Mufasa, you know? Like, I wanted him to take that little boy out of the delivery room so I could just pick him up and say, behold, Mufasa. <laughs> you know? They didn't, by the way. Sparrow was their daughter. But sometimes parents, just, they name their kids weird names, right? And, and Naomi and Elimelech, they take the cake, right? They're, they name their, their kids Malon and Kilion, which literally means sick and dying, yeah, how much do you have to hate your kids, right, <laughs> to name them sick and dying, right? It's like, yeah, here's, uh, I want to introduce you to my two little boys. Here's uh, colon cancer and incurable elephantitis. And I was like, just not nice. It's not good. I know it's in the Bible, but, and we have Star Wars fans here, probably some Star Trek fans here, and it sounds kind of Star Trek-ish, right? Malon, Kilion, it's in the Bible. Don't name your kids that, right? Not nice. If you love them, you won't name them that, right? And we find out right away, too, that there's a famine going on which really shouldn't surprise us at all. Uh, because one of the things we find throughout the scriptures, throughout the Old Testament, that almost every single time there's a famine, it's in conjunction with God's judgment. Right? And so we already know that this is a dark period of time, generation after generation after generation of just rejecting God, and there's a famine uh, going on. And what ends up happening, what we find, is that it, Elimelech is the husband of his home, father of his home, head of his home, has a decision to make, and it's an important decision. Right, because Bethlehem, which literally means house of bread, has no bread. Right? There's a famine going on. But what he finds out is just down the road, 50 miles in Moab, uh, there's food. Right? Which tells us this is probably judgment because the famine is centralized just with God's people. And just 50 miles away, there's plenty of food. And so he's got a decision to make. Right? Am I going to stay where I'm supposed to stay with God's people or am I going to go to Moab? And this is important because God's people were not supposed to go to Moab. They were supposed to be a holy set-apart pe- set people. They are not to dwell with Moabites. Um, they were, uh, Mo- the Moabite people had a reputation for being an incestuous, sexually perverse people who worshipped a false god named Chemosh. All right, this was not a place where God's people were supposed to go. But what Chemosh does, I'm sorry, what Elimelech does, is he does what a lot of us guys do, right? Especially those of us who are go-getters, type A personality, is he sits down, and even though he knows what the right decision is, even though he knows he's supposed to stay put, he sits down, he, he just crunches the numbers. Right? He looks at the paper, he's like, okay, there's no food, we're struggling to, to eat here in Bethlehem, and he looks at Moab, it's like, better 
All right, there's more upward mobility, more job opportunities, and ultimately, rather, rather than deal with the sin issues that are going on, the deep spiritual reality, rather than fervently running after God, wholeheartedly serving Him, Elimelech just does what is the most rational decision in his mind, even though it's disobedient, and he moves his family uh, to Moab, which is very, very important because uh, it's going to have a profound effect on his family, on his wife, on his kids. Are right, you ever, like, just pause for a moment. You ever been there where, where you had a big decision to make, you had a hard decision to make, but if you were really honest, like, you knew what the right decision was, right? You knew what God would have you do in that situation. It just didn't make sense on paper. And the more rational decision, the one that made more sense on paper, it was the disobedient decision. And you end up making maybe a poor choice looking back, we should have done the hard thing, the right thing. Well, that's where Elimelech's at. And ultimately, he does decide um, that he was going to move his family to Moab. Right? Things get hard. He goes through some pain, some suffering, some disappointment with God, and he bails and takes his family to Moab. And very quickly, what ends up happening is that things go from bad to worse. It's already bad with the famine. But what we find is with this family, they experience tragedy after tragedy after tragedy after tragedy in very, very quick succession. He moves, and immediately we're told that Elimelech dies. All right, why did, why did he move to Moab in the first place? So he wouldn't die. All right, what happens when he moves to Moab? All right, he dies, all right, which is important. All right, moral of the story, death is in God's hands. All right, he tried to take it into his own, and, and he dies. And here's the, here's the thing that kind of bothers me. I don't know about you, but when I read something like this, like, I want to know why. Right, we've been introduced to this family. We're told that Elimelech dies. I want to know what happened. Right? Was this judgment or something like that? Was, this, was there a freak accident? Did he get hit by a camel? Right, what happened? You know? And, and here's the thing. You, you, know, you know that in this moment, Naomi is beside herself. She just lost her husband. She's a widow now in a foreign land, and she's crying out to God, why? And God is silent. Scripture doesn't say a word about why he dies. All we're told is that he does. And then things get even worse. Right? We're, we're given a little glimpse of hope because it says that although Elimelech has died, that she still has both of her sons, Malon and Kilion, which is important because in this culture, your sons would take care of you, they'd nurture you, they'd provide for you in, in your old age. So even though she doesn't have a husband, there's at least some hope because she still has her sons. And we're told in verse 4 that they married Moabite women, uh, one named Orpah and the other named Ruth. And we're told that they lived there for about 10 years at this point. Right, so immediately, once again, we're being clued in to things are just getting worse because there's a detail that we don't hear anything about in this passage. Right, when a couple's been married for several years, what do you expect to be running around the house? Right, kids, you start to wonder, is there something going on? especially in the Midwest, right? We value kids here. At this particular time, kids were everything, especially sons, because you needed them to take over your family name into the future. You needed them to retain your property as a family. You needed them to provide for you in your old age. They've been there for over 10 years. These couples have both been married, and there's no kids. And so the story gets from bad to worse, and just, just when we think it couldn't get any worse... Uh, just when this family is teetering on the brink of extinction, uh, we're told in verse 5 that both Malon and Kilion also die. 
Right? It's just tragedy after tragedy after tragedy after tragedy. This is as bleak and hopeless as this story uh, can really get. Right? Just put yourself for a minute in the shoes of Naomi. Right? Try. I know it's hard. But you move to a foreign land with your husband, with your two sons. Your husband dies. You're left a widow in a man's world where you cannot work a trade. You cannot do business with men. You cannot provide for yourself. Your only hope is for your kids. And no sooner are you picking up the pieces of your life and you have to bury both of your children. This is, as a dad who loves my little girls more than anything in the world, I can't imagine anything more painful than having to bury Megan and then having to bury Paige and Chloe right after that. Like this is, I mean, emotionally, I can't even go there. Right? This is the part of the story that I kind of skip ahead, you know, and try to just gloss over and get to the rest of the stuff. Because this is awful, right? The, the parents should never have to bury their kids. And here Naomi, the beginning of the story, just boom, 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 loses her husband, loses both of her sons, and now it sets the stage for an all-female cast in a world where it's really hard to make it as a woman, especially a widow, on your own. And this is what's going on. She is left with absolutely nothing. She's penniless. She is at the bottom of the social status. Um, She is all by herself, cannot provide for herself. And we are left to wonder, uh, how is this going to turn out? Uh, This is as bad as it can get. Deep, deep suffering for Naomi, Ruth, and Orpah. And by the way, still no mention as to why. Bible, God, is still completely silent. Why? Why is this happening? And here's where the question that it's going to beg of us, or what we're going to watch unfold, is how they deal with this. How would they respond to intense suffering and serious doubts about the nature of God? Verse 6, Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food. So there's food back in the house of bread in Bethlehem. The famine has ended, and she decides after many years away that her, Orpah, and Ruth We'll get on the road and they'll head home. And then a conversation unfolds where she's going to try to persuade both of them to go home. Verses 8 and 9, she says, Then Naomi said to her daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. And then she kissed them goodbye and tells us that they wept aloud. So now they're more than just mother-in-law, daughter-in-law. Right? They have been to hell and back. They have buried every one of their husbands and stood side by side as that casket was put in the ground. And they've tried to pick up the pieces together. They're trying to figure out how to survive together. And Naomi basically just says, you know what? I have nothing to offer you. Chances are I'm not going to be remarried. I'm definitely not going to have kids. And you are Moabites. You're not going to be welcome in Bethlehem. Chances are there's more suffering there for me, that waits. And if you come with me, things are probably going to get worse before they get better. And you're young. If a husband will have you, you could still get remarried. So go, be blessed, take off. And then what we find is that after some more dialogue back and forth, or- Orpah and, R- and Ruth, they respond to this in very, very different ways. In verse 14, at this they wept aloud again, and then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye. But Ruth clung to her. Right? And so Orpah really does what seems to be what makes most sense on paper, what we would probably just consider ordinary. She looks at the facts, makes a lot more sense for her to stay in Moab. Right? But there's a lot at stake here. 
Because the way that the passage describes it, she's going back not just to her own people, but to her own gods as well. Things get hard, and rather than serving God, she, she heads back. And I like uh, Mark Driscoll <laughs> suggests that because she looked like a Christian, but turns out that she was faking it and really just a pagan girl, it's only appropriate that we actually call her Oprah instead of Orpah. <laughs> yeah, I thought that was pretty good. I named him, though. So, I'm, you know, it's not me. It's not me. Be mad at him. Whatever. So good. So Oprah, Orpah, call her whatever you want. Right? She does the ordinary thing. The thing that makes the most sense on paper, turns away from God, goes and serves Chemosh or whatever. But Ruth, what we find in Ruth, something extraordinary has happened in the life of Ruth. And we don't know when it happened, but at some point, this gal who grew up worshiping a false god, who did not grow up around God's people, who did not know previously who Yahweh was or worshiped him, she places her full faith and trust in him. And she says, she speaks now for the first time, and her words are legendary. In fact, some of you may have used them as, as vows in your wedding. They're that legendary and that common. This is what she says in verse 16. She says, Do not urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. For where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and get this, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord, Yahweh, deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. And so we are introduced to this unlikely, who's going to be a hero of the faith in Ruth, this Moabite widow. She is demonstrating extraordinary faith. And by the way, one of the things that I love, one of the things I love about the scriptures is that this is what we find over and over and over. Is oftentimes the people who have all the right answers, who should know better, are not the people who God uses in the most extraordinary of ways. Have you seen this? All throughout the scriptures, what we find is oftentimes the kids that were raised in church, the adults who would really do well on a Bible trivia test, the people who know the right answers are rarely the people who God uses in the most extraordinary ways. Oftentimes, the people who are celebrated and who God just uses are people who don't really know much, but what they do know, they respond in obedience. I think about Jesus in Matthew 8, right? The Roman centurion comes to Jesus. This is a Roman soldier, and he, his servant is fallen ill, and he's dying. And Jesus says, shall I go with you and heal him? And the Roman centurion, right, not a Jew, not a worshiper of God initially, says, you know what? No, 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 no. I'm a commander, right, of soldiers. When I tell them to go, they go. When I tell them to come, they come. All you need to do is speak the word, and my servant will be fine. And Jesus, you remember Jesus' response? Jesus says, I have not seen this kind of faith in all of Israel. God often uses people and celebrates people who we would not think would be the people that he draws out and uses in the most extraordinary ways. Right? A Roman centurion, a foreign prostitute in Jericho, a Moabite widow. And what we're going to find, what we find in this story, is that despite deep, deep pain, despite suffering, Despite doubts about God and his character and his intentions, what we find is that God is actually going to use this Moabite widow from a foreign people to, uh, to change the course of human history. That even when they didn't see it, God was at work. But they just can't see it yet. And, and this is ultimately the purpose, by the way, of the book of Ruth. 
in many of the Old Testament stories is that God's people suffer and they struggle. And they wonder, where is God in all of this? And this was one of those stories that was written down and shared generation after generation after generation and now to us, just like many of the stories in the Bible, to remind God's people, even though you don't see it, even though you can't see how God is at work, even though you don't feel that he is near, even though you feel like he has abandoned you, God is very busy behind the scenes. And that he is going to take this broken, messed up situation and ultimately use it for good in a way that only God can. I've shared before about our family um, over 10 years ago and some of the things that we were going through uh, when my sister Rachel was really, really struggling. And uh, I won't share a ton about it, but, but there's certain things that I remember about that season. And it was a very dark season, the darkest season by far for our family. And I remember the day that, that Rachel um, told us that she was pregnant as a teenager and that the father was who we were really afraid that it would be, that it was a manipulative, abusive uh, felon who had already been in and out of jail who was a meth dealer. Right? And I remember, I remember the days when my mom could not even get out of bed just because of the hopelessness. I remember Rachel running away a number of times. I remember late nights of searching for her as she got sicker and sicker and was using meth more and more frequently. And we searched for her with all the friends that we could desperately recruit. Now, I remember, I just remember things getting from bad to worse. I remember when she admitted that she was addicted to meth, right? a drug with a less than 1% recovery rate. And I remember when my parents sent her off to rehab and we prayed so desperately that this would be the thing that would break her out of it. You know, that would shake her out of that. And I, and I remember when my parents uh, ultimately went bankrupt because of what the tens of thousands of dollars that rehab cost that they didn't have a number of years later. Like I remember, and if you would, here's the thing, if you would have asked us in that period of time if we saw any light at the end of the tunnel, we would have said through a lot of tears, absolutely not. Right? And if you would have said, you know what? Can you see how God might use us for good? I might have punched you. You know? Like if you would have said some trite, well, God uses all things for the good, you know, seriously. You would have got maybe beat up. We couldn't see it. It was a hopeless, hopeless time. But here's, here's what happened. And, I, of course, I'm just sharing my own story. It's the best that I can do, but it just illustrates this so well. What ended up happening is we went to rehab as a family and uh, when Rachel was in a recovery program. And when we were there, we met some of the most wonderful people, just great people, but people that we normally wouldn't really interact with, especially on a Sunday morning. And uh, they were at the end of their rope. Some of them, um, actually, they said the majority of them would die from drug addiction. And they were very clear about that the whole time. The vast majority of them would eventually. Um, so we're talking about just a broken people, but wonderful people. And when we were there, uh, I just remember my dad. Uh, my dad, just God coming alive in, in him in a way that I had never seen before. And what ended up happening is, my, is God used that to just break my dad. As he looked around at these people who we had gotten to know, who we had grown to love, and he realized, you know what? The church that we're at right now, it's a great church, but these people would never feel welcome there. They need a community that exists for them. And out of this seemingly hopeless situation, a church was birthed. And uh, that church is called River Tree, and now eight years later, my dad still pastors that church. And it would be out of that church that this church would be birthed a number of years later. 
And some of you in this room, you've come to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior for the first time in this community. For others of you, you had made a decision long before, but you were dead in the water, and God used the people here and this community to breathe new life in you like you thought was not possible. Some of you were, the, the people of this community, they bought your groceries when you had no money to do that. Right? They tossed you a life raft. They paid for your rent. They came around you and loved you, and it changed your life. And I would suggest that a lot of that, at least in part, what you've experienced, what we've got to experience, at least began. There's a number of things that had to happen, but it began through a very dark, painful time in one family that was full of suffering, and if you would have asked us, was full of hopelessness. We couldn't see God at work, but was God at work? You bet he was. We did not, honestly, we really didn't trust him during that time. We prayed like we did, but the more no's that we got, the more that we doubted. And was God trustworthy during that time? You bet he was. Now here's the thing. What I am not suggesting is that everything that happens in your life, God wants to happen. Right? The Bible talks about God hates sin. He weeps over sin. And so there are people, some of you have experienced horrendous things because somebody committed a sin against you or multiple sins, and you've been dealing with the fallout of that for a number of years. And what I'm not saying is God wanted that for, for that to happen because the Bible is clear that is not true. But what I am suggesting is that, is that God, if there's anything I know about God, it's that he is in the business of taking that brokenness and that suffering and that hopelessness, the worst parts of our lives, and using it for good in a way that only he can. Even if you can't see it right now. Even if you have a hard time hearing that right now. That God has not abandoned you. And God had not abandoned Ruth and Naomi. But at this point in the story, if you would ask them, do you see how this might work out for good? Absolutely not. Do you see how God might work this out? No. Do you see any light at the end of this tunnel? No. And so they get back to Bethlehem. They arrive in Bethlehem. And the people freak out. It has been a long time. The people go crazy. The bloggers go crazy. Verse 19, So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman exclaimed, Can this be Naomi? Right now, you know, when you haven't seen people for a long time, and they see you and they're like, Is that you? That's not always a good thing, right? Unless you've lost a lot of weight, that's typically not a good thing, right? When you go to your 10-year reunion, right, you don't want people to be like, that can't be Angela, right? Is this Naomi? Life has been hard on Naomi. It has taken its toll. Can this be Naomi? And people, the town is abuzz, and people surround her. Naomi, where have you been? What's been going on? Catch us up. How are you doing? And this is what she says in verse 20. Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara meaning bitter, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune on me. Right? She says, you want to know how I'm doing? God ruined my life. He took everything. He took it all. I left full. I was blessed, and now I am suffering and I am bitter. You know what? Pleasant? Don't call me Naomi anymore. Call me Mara. Because bitter is what I am. 
Right? Now, let's just talk about this for a moment. When you read this, what's your initial reaction to Naomi when she responds like this? Because I'll tell you, as the, com- the commentators and the scholars just fillet her at this point. Like, they just, well, Ephesians says or you're not supposed to be bitter, and Hebrews says you're not supposed to be bitter. Girl got bitter. Right? She just gets, she gets just shellacked. Like, just very poor things are written about her. Right? But honestly, I've got to tell you, the more that I read this story, the more that I marinate on it and, and get to know the characters, like, the more that I am coming to just love Naomi. Right? Because I get it. Right? I can relate with that. More than I can relate to Ruth. I can relate to Naomi. Right? And I wonder how many of us, if you're really honest, you say, you know what, I can relate to that too. Being bitter and angry at God. In fact, I wonder how many people here, you're bitter and you're angry and you're frustrated and you're disappointed with God, but unlike Naomi, you're just not honest about it. Right? And so you walked in here this morning and maybe saw some people like, hey, how you doing? You know, you're like, I'm fine. Yeah, I'm fine. I'm, I'm good. Yeah, I'm, I'm, how are you? You know, put on the Christian face, right? But if you were really honest and we asked you, you know, like, no, really, how are you doing? You say, my life sucks. I don't like God right now. I don't trust him. I don't think he's listening. I seriously doubt that he's up there at all in this season. Right? But, the, but this is what we do in the Christian, the whole Christian church thing, right? We put on the smile, shake hands. We're like, no, no, it's, it's fine. You know, I'm doing pretty good. Um, the pills, they help. And, uh, you know, I've got my accountability group of Johnny Walker and Jim Meem and Jose Cuervo, and we're good. We're, we're, we're going to be all right. You know, but no. If you're really honest, you're not. You're not all right. It's not being honest about it. Right? If Ruth's, if Ruth's virtue is, is faith, right? Naomi's virtue is honesty. She's real. Right? They ask how you're doing, and she's like, not good. My life sucks. She's honest. Right? And if she would have said this by herself, I think we could say, you know what? That's a woman who doesn't have faith, but she said this with God's people. Right? She's come back home with people who can encourage her and support her and build her up. And she says, you know what? I might, I know I'm not supposed to feel this way, but I do. Help me. Walk with me. And I love that. Four different characters, four very different responses to disappointment with God. All right, so here's where I want to challenge you this morning. I want to challenge you, one, first of all, to think about, okay, if you had to identify with one of the characters in this story, when it comes to how you typically respond to God when you're disappointed, which one would you say that you typically identify with? Which one are you, all right? Are you a Limelech? Right, a Limelech's the guy with the plan. Things get hard. Things don't go according to plan. And so he starts crunching numbers, taking a poll, making a plan, making his to-do list, and he sets out. You know what? He plans well, he leads well, and everybody dies anyway. Right? I got I to gotta be honest. This is, this is me. This is, this is who I tend to be. Right? Elimelech, whose name means, my God is king. Right? That's, that's me. I'm my, God, you are king. You are worthy to be praised. You are worth my life's worship. You are in control. And you know what? If I need your help, I'll call you, but I think I got it handled. All right, this is Elimelech. How many of you? This is, this is the way you typically respond. Or are you Oprah? Right, or Orpah? Right? Yeah, you know what? I gave the Christian thing a try. Went to church for a while, and it just didn't take. You know, it seemed like Jesus wanted me to do some things I didn't want to do. 
So I just walked away. Or, you know, I was, I was doing something I shouldn't be doing. I mean, I was dating a non-Christian guy, and I just kept praying that God would make him a Christian, and he didn't, and it didn't work out. In fact, it was pretty painful. Weird how that works. Right? And so now I'm done. Right? Or my marriage was really not doing well. And I kept praying that God would change my spouse, but he never did. And our marriage fell apart. And you know what? I'm done with God. I'm done with church. I'm done with the Bible. I'm going to do my own thing. Right? Orpah? Or maybe, maybe, you're Ruth. Right? And, and when things get really, really hard for you, you just, maybe you've walked this path before, you have been to hell and back, and rather than running from God, you just fall on your face before Him and trust that, you know what, even when you can't see how the pieces fit together, that you trust that God is good. And you resolve to trust Him and move forward. And by the way, if that's you, please let me know afterwards, because I need to learn from you. I want to buy you a drink and figure out what it's like to be you. Because most of the time, that's not me. Maybe every now and then, but not really. Or maybe, for you, how many people here are Naomi? Right, you're Naomi. You've gone through some hard stuff, and you are vocal about it. You're angry, you are bitter, perhaps you're self-righteous, you're finger-pointing, you're a frustrating people, person to be around. But God loves you, for no apparent reason. But He does. He loves you. I think for many of us, probably, if we're really honest, I think there's probably different seasons of life where we identify with every one of these characters, depending on the season. Because the truth is, rarely do we get it right. Right? But, here's the point of Ruth in wrapping up. Right? There's, there's two small heroes. The, cap, like the, the capital H hero of our story is God. And that's what we're going to find out. And you're going to have to come back to see that. Right? But the lowercase h heroes are Naomi and Ruth who ran to God's people. Right? And, and if you're here this morning and you, honestly, if you're really honest, you, just, you are frustrated with God, you are having a hard time, like just know that this is a community where you can be real. And whatever you do, don't isolate yourself. Right? Get connected in a life group. Invite people into your pain. You're going to find out that you have a lot more in common than you think. And get honest about it. Be honest about it, like Naomi. But lastly, even though we don't get it right, God does. And that is ultimately the story of Ruth, which you're going to find out. That even when we can't see it, God is at work. And even when we can't feel it, God is there. Right? Even when we can't see how all the pieces fit together, God is working them out in a way that only He can. And Romans 8.28 sums it up well. And this is what it says. It says, And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purpose. And if you're going through a rough season right now, I know that's hard to hear, and I know that me just quoting that might make you want to punch me in the face, and that's okay. But it doesn't change the fact that it's true. And so just know that God's not done with you yet that the pain that you're going through is not forever, and then if you'll let him, God is going to work that out in a way that only he can for both your good and the good of those around you. And that's what we're going to find in the story of Ruth, but you've got to come back because we're not done yet. Let's pray. Lord God, <clears throat> I pray for those in this room uh, that relate to this season that Naomi and Ruth are in. 
people who have experienced just a really rough season where you have felt distant, where you have not answered perhaps some of their prayers, where you have not come through for them in ways that they wanted you to, and they find themselves doubting whether you are really a good God at all or whether you're there. And God, I ask that if they would venture to be as honest as Naomi about that, that God, you would reach down and show them how good you are and assure them that even if they can't see it right now, that you are close and that you are at work behind the scenes, that you have not given up on them, that you are trustworthy, and that you're not finished. Lord God, we ask that just over the next several weeks as we open up uh, your word, that God, that you would just continue to, to rock us and to speak to us. And Lord God, for those who are, who are honest and courageous enough to invite other people into their pain, into their lives, Lord God, I ask just for your grace, for your work, and that you would begin to heal some of those wounds. Lord God, we love you. And we pray all these things in your name. Amen.